My name is Joe Bianca. I'm the associate editor of the Thoroughbred Daily News. I'm also the host of TDN's Writer's Room podcast. This is the first episode of Better Things with Joe Bianca. In this show, we'll be having one-on-one, in-depth conversations with some of the handicapping world's brightest minds. We'll ask them about wagering strategies, how they got into the world of horse racing or even sports betting. And we'll ask them about life as a whole, just to get to know who they are. In this first episode, we talked to David Aragona, who's a very, very sharp horse racing handicapper. He's the morning line maker for Naira. He's also a host of a podcast for Timeform US and a handicapper for Timeform US and DRF. We had a great conversation. We're thrilled to have you watching the show. And maybe a little bit later on, we'll give you a little derby future wager. Check out our interview with David. So I'm so thrilled to welcome my first guest on this show, Better Things, with Joe Bianca. He's a fellow podcast host, but he's so much more than that. He's the morning line maker for Naira. He's a sharp handicap for daily racing form, time form US. David Aragona, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to having a chat. Great, great to have you. Honestly, one, the reason I wanted to have you on first, because I feel like on the surface level, we have a lot of things in common. We're young, New York-based guys. We're handicappers. I wouldn't... Con- compare myself to you as a handicapper, but I feel like I don't know that much about you, you know? So let's start with that. Let's start with how you got into horse racing. What was, what's your origin story for being a horse player? I mean, I feel like my origin story is pretty typical. Uh, started going to the races with my dad, you know, the cliche when I was uh, a very young kid. Um, actually, my dad and his brother, my uncle, um, were both into races since they were in their mid-20s. Uh, they both went to college together and they had like a college roommate that one day asked if they wanted to go see a horse race. Uh, it happened that the first horse race their college roommate took them to was Secretariat's Belmont Stakes. Wow. So that was their introduction to horse racing. Obviously, they were hooked from that moment. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so they were like really into the races all through like the late 70s, early 80s. And I started going with my dad when I was uh, a young kid, like in the growing up in the early to mid 90s. And uh, it just kind of stuck. Um, you know, I learned a lot of the handicapping principles from him and that allure of like picking the winners of races and betting like two, four dollars on a race when I was a kid. It just kind of stuck and really uh, uh, interested me. And, you know, I went to college for other things and uh, kind of put it on the back burner for a little while, but uh, it was always a hobby and it just kind of like accidentally turned into my career. What was there one score that maybe gave you the bug and got you hooked? Cause I always tell people this, I, I had the, the trifecta when funny side won the Derby and I was like 16 years old and it paid $600, which to a 16 year old is all the money you could possibly want. So to me that, that whole summer, I was just like, how do I do that again? Was there one score that you had? Uh, I guess we were both funny side stands. Uh, I I bet him in the initial future wager that year when he wow. was, I think, ni- 93 to 1. Uh, I just, like, loved his New York bread races from when he was a two-year-old. And uh, I bet him in that. And, like, he ended up winning the Derby. So I thought, oh, this is so easy. Uh, but, uh, no, yeah, I mean, that definitely, like, you know, got the bug going in me a little bit. Um, and more so in later years, like multi-race bets, really getting into that. I had a really big Travers Day, uh, the year that we'll take charge one. Uh, I think I hit the pick four that day, paid like $6,000 or something. Something So that kind of like really, uh, you know, got me more interested in doing more with the handicapping around that time, like 2012, 2013. Uh, and that's when I started blocking about races a lot. And that kind of led to what I do now. Well, that's, you just led me into my next question too, because I feel like, you kind of did this the hard way to get to where you are. You know, it's 
For real, like you had, because you had you had your blog, you you just kind of organically, I think, became known for having a good opinion with your horse to watch blog and and your Twitter account. That's how I came to know you um, before you you started working for Timeform and and DRF. But you know, was did you always know once you started that blog that you wanted to do this, or did was that just kind of a hobby that turned into a career? I. I didn't know I wanted to do exactly what I'm doing now. Um, I never thought I'd be a morning line maker specifically. Um, but uh, no, I coming out of college, I graduated in 2010. And I just had like a couple of those years where I was just, like confused. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just like in that lull period where I was just trying to find something that really like I was passionate about beyond just a day-to-day job. Um, so I didn't really have any friends that were my age that were into horse racing. So, you know, I got on Twitter and I noticed that there was this whole horse racing community that I might be able to tap into or meet people. Um, And, you know, I was new to Twitter. I didn't really get it. So I figured, okay, I've got to like start a blog to like have something to link to so I can get my thoughts out there. And, uh, you know, I just started doing that, I think in 2012 for like an entire year. I had probably like 10 readers a day, like nobody was paying any attention. And I, but I did it like every night for the New York races, basically a lot, very similar to what I do now. And I would just be disciplined about it and just try to put something out there because I figured if I had like enough of body of work and if I did a good job, like maybe finally somebody would notice. Um, Because I guess like in the back of my mind, I wanted to get more embedded in the racing industry somehow just be doing something i didn't know exactly what i just knew that this was my passion and i wanted to get connected with somebody that was as passionate as me that could maybe give me an opportunity um so i kept doing that um i had this like really big day at the end of my first year blogging it was late in the aqueduct meet when i i I think I wrote up three races that day. I typically like wrote up three or four races every day where I like highlighted horses that I thought were interesting. And all three of them won. One of them was 50 to one. Another one was 75 to one. And that like got people noticing and my views on the website, like shot up by tenfold after that, I guess like some word of mouth happened. Um, So yeah, from there, it just kind of kept going on like an upward trajectory and, uh, got opportunities from a few people in the racing industry. Actually, one of the first people that reached out to me and like said, you know, I want to get you working in the racing industry was uh, Andy Serling. Um, He just like invited me to lunch one day in the city. And I was like totally starstruck uh, because I mean, I had been following him and like emulating what I do after his analysis for so many years. And, uh, you know, he told me like, I don't have any opportunities for you right now, but like, I'll just listen, see if anything opens up. You know, I have a lot of connections in the industry and maybe something eventually will happen. And I'm sure it was indirectly. I don't think Andy directly recommended me, but um, Mike Beer used to do the Timeform US analysis back in like 2014, 2015. And when he got hired by the Daily Racing Forum, uh, that position kind of opened up and Mark Attenberg, who created Timeform US and is now with the Racing Forum, uh, he gave me the opportunity. Uh, I think he had heard about me from Andy a little bit. And that's uh, that's how it happened. A couple of really sharp guys, obviously, Andy and Mike. Is Andy ever kind of a jerk to you? Because I, I know Andy. I go way <laughs> back with Andy. Uh, we kind of go – I go back to him with him since I was a teenager. I don't know if you know, but Steve Bick has uh, this website, Derby Trail. And he, mm-hmm. he was, it was like a forum that a bunch of us were yeah. on. And he kind of took an interest in me early on. But that interest was like – part praise and part mentorship and part being a jerk and bullying me a little bit. And he kind of baptized me by fire that way. Was he always nice to you? 
Yeah, I guess it kind of goes against his like image that he puts out there. So maybe I shouldn't say it, but like he's actually like a really totally. nice person who's interested yeah. in fostering some talent. Like he really likes to give opportunities to younger totally. people that are passionate about the industry. And uh, I mean, I feel like I was one of them. So uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's something that uh, I feel like a lot of people aren't aware about him uh, yeah. because he kind of has that curmudgeonly persona on Twitter and in all the analysis he does. But totally, yeah, he's no, a curmudgeon sure. with a heart of gold. That's like he's yeah. like that stereotypical type character. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, you don't really have that many friends who, who watch racing or into racing. I think that's kind of a, a kind of a shared uh, issue that we have as as young handicappers. Like none of my friends watch racing and. I know it's like it's so old timey where you even tell somebody you're like I'm in, I'm into horse racing they're like what that's that's still a thing <laughs> um, yep. so like have you ever even tried to like get some of your friends into racing have you taken them to the track like what's you know what's that that experience been for you oh yeah when I was uh, I mean going all the way back when I was like ten years old I had a racing birthday party where all my friends came to the Meadowlands uh, my dad had to like get all the parents to sign permission slips that they were okay with going into like a wagering environment. <laughs> And if he wanted to know if it was okay, if he like, they brought $20 and they could all bet some money on the races. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that didn't really stick with them, though. I, I think they didn't quite get it. Um, but no, like in later years, I've taken friends to the races different times. Um, and there have been positive experiences, some less so. I mean, I, it's often uh, comes down to whether or not you win money for new at the racetrack. I mean, that can kind of determine if you have a good time or a bad time. Um, but no, like I've, I know a few people that are my age that have been at least gotten more curious about it just through knowing me and talking to me. I always tell people, like, if you if you want to experience racing at its best is to go to Saratoga. You know, because people will people will expect express like an initial interest to me and say, like, when you're going out to Belmont, like, take me with you. And I'm like, I don't know that you want to come out to Belmont or Aqueduct like it's and be there with 300 people in the entire facility. If you want to go to somewhere where it's really lively and there's a racing culture, then come to Saratoga. But it's hard. It's hard to get people to come that three, three and a half hour trip from the city. So are you from the city initially? Uh, I'm actually from northern New Jersey, probably okay. like 10, 15 miles outside of New York City. So I was always kind of in the tri-state area growing up. Gotcha. Did you go to college in the city? Yeah, I went to uh, NYU for uh, for oh. undergrad. I only did undergrad, so yeah. Tip my cap to you, sir. It's impressive <laughs> to be an NYU grad uh, in, in any way. Um, so yeah, so, so is like is, you think your future is always going to be a New York-based horse racing guy, or do you have like other things that you would want to do in this game, or even outside of the game? Yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure. I mean, I'm kind of married to doing the New York stuff right now with the morning line gig. I kind of it takes up so much of my time. I don't really have the option to spend that much time looking at other tracks. Uh, yeah. I mean, I do a little bit for some of the stuff I have to the videos I have to do for DRF and things like that. Um, but I have to kind of be very New York focused. It's weird, like. When I first started handicapping New York racing, it felt easier. Um, It felt like the money was not as smart as it is today. And I feel like I don't want to give like people like me too much credit. But I mean, I think I feel like there are a lot of um, really astute handicappers that write about New York racing. And it just feels like... um, the play there is a lot more sophisticated than it is on other circuits. It's really hard to find value in New York. And I just, just for me personally, handicapping the races, it's really a lot harder to find opportunities that match your opinions, or at least the opinions that I put out there publicly. Um, it's uh, it's really difficult to find value here. So I do sometimes think like, would it be easier if I just kind of like totally switch things up and try it on a different circuit? I mean, I'd like to do the experiment at some point, uh, but uh, I don't know if it's going to happen right now. 
I don't think Mahoning Valley handicapper David Aragona has quite the same ring to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Um, Going to make that a thing. The morning line thing is really interesting, I think, because you kind of have to separate your own opinion from what you think the public is going to do. Like, is that is that hard for you? Like, or, or are you, you able to separate those two things? When I first started doing it, I thought it would be harder than it actually was. Um, but it, it really is kind of like just turning off that side of your brain and like saying, OK, my opinions don't really matter. It's just like a, a basically an exercise in paying attention to what happens on the tote board. And the biggest homework that I did and I still do for making the morning line is just kind of like sitting in front of the TV and watching the tote action and taking note of which horses take money, which horses don't. What was I right about? What was I wrong about? Because a lot of the times the trends that you see on the tote board and the wagering, um, it doesn't really follow things that you think should be moving the money that much. But there are certain angles that a lot of people do put a lot of faith in uh, that you do have to be aware of. So for me, I kind of have this repository of all these angles and like a kind of in a hierarchy in my head. And when I go through the races, you see which ones apply and you just try to do your best to look at it through this, uh, the eye of like the public um, in quotation marks. Uh, and then once I'm done, I'll go back and see what my opinions are. But I do try to make them two completely separate endeavors. You know, you mentioned all the sharp money, the smart money that, that's in New York. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think in general, it's very hard. Uh, you know, but then you have the catch 22 of like, if you go to another pool, you play turf paradise, make a hundred dollar win bet, you move the pool by totally. yourself. So that's a little bit of an issue too. But like, uh, it's been it's been a big uh, discussion and debate around the computer wagers, and I think Naira has done a very good job in kind of limiting them in certain pools. Do you think that that's something that needs to happen more across the board to make it fairer for the for the common horse player? For sure. I mean, there are kind of two components to that. I mean, the first is just the general presence of the CAW wager, which I feel like it's not going anywhere right now. And what Naira did, it it doesn't completely solve the problem. I know that they have probably some more steps planned down the line to address it. Um, but what they did with what you're referencing, like taking the CAW wagering out of the wind pool, it does solve that immediate problem of appearances where a horse's odds are going to drop in half in the middle of a race, right. obviously. It's not because uh, money's being bet during the race, but it's because so much of the play comes in in the final seconds that you do have that slight delay and the wagering, the wind wagering, it does really change at a lot of tracks. And I feel like Naira has solved that problem and it can give you a little bit more confidence betting into the wind pool because you know you're going to be locked into a certain price with a little more confidence than you do at some other circuits but in a lot of the other pools that money is still there yeah. and uh it's uh it's difficult to beat i mean it's just like another layer on top of the takeout that's working against the average player well it's such a catch-22 for the tracks too because they really want that money like they'd be totally ironic to like turn aside these millions of dollars and handle. But at the same time, you're going to drive away a lot of the meat and potatoes horse players if, if you don't do that, you know? Yeah. And it's like walking this fine line between what people actually care about. Because I feel like the average player, they're not so much aware of why the odds are changing. They just know it's happening. Yeah. Um, and they don't necessarily know that they're losing X amount of dollars over this period of time because that money's in the pool, because basically a certain uh, segment of the population is locked into, you know, a certain ROI, it's going to affect the how you do over time. Um, I feel like there's not a widespread understanding of that, but um, there is that immediate understanding that, okay, I could have more confidence playing in this one pool because it's not happening anymore. 
I got to ask you about this thing that happened. I don't know if you played on Sunday at Tampa. They had the pick five carryover. I'm sure you heard about it on racing as a racing. I saw Twitter, some chatter on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a racing Twitter stalwart now, I'm, I'm going to call you that. <laughs> um, why is it so hard for these tracks to get this kind of stuff? Not, not even get it right. Just don't get it horrendously wrong to the point where people feel slapped in the face. Like, what? what is the deal with that kind of thing? And just for anybody who doesn't know, the deal was uh, there was a big pick five carryover at Tampa Bay Downs. Uh, right before the start of the pick five, they took the remaining races on the day off the turf. There were three turf races left. So basically dis- discredited, like disregarded everybody's handicapping and were scratching horses as the horses were loading into the gate for the fifth race. Like, why is this so hard not to screw up, David? Uh, it's, it's really frustrating. Um, it, I, I do honestly feel like a lot of times it's not something nefarious going on and it's no, just I a agree. communication break. It's a communication breakdown at the racetracks. A lot of times the arms of the racetrack, um, that make that decision are not necessarily thinking about the betting side of it. And that's a real problem. And right. I don't know. How is that yeah, possible I, though? I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's a, like, it's a, it's a simple training that solves that or what, but it feels like that has to be drilled into the minds of so many people that work in this industry that like, that's the primary concern, giving the people that bet on your sport, the confidence that they have a fair chance. And when something like that happens, it does make people feel whether rightly or wrongly, like the track is actively working against them and you don't want to leave your customers feeling that way. Um, I know with that, the specific situation, I don't know exactly what was going on with the weather. I wasn't following Tampa Bay Downs that day. I do know sometimes there is difficulty when races are taken off the turf and the timing of things. And uh, if there's forecasted rain later in the day, I know some tracks want to preserve the wagering product in other pools and stuff like that. So I don't know the exact specifics of the Tampa situation. I'm not speaking to that. Um, But it does feel like you have to come into that decision-making process with the betters in mind or else you're, you're not doing your customers a favor. And it was like, I honestly was watching it. I didn't see a drop of rain all day. It might, it might've been one of those things where the jockeys rode an earlier turf race and were like, there's, you know, lumps in the turf course or whatever and, and complain. But either way, worst case scenario, you got to give, extend the post time, 20, 30 minutes, like give people a chance, you know? And I think that this is, this is especially bad when it comes to uh, the the increased uh, availability of sports wagering. I think it's a big, big problem because, you know, a lot of people talk about sports wagering being a, you know, a threat to, to horse racing wagering. I don't think it's necessarily the new better that's going to go to sports betting instead of racing. I think it's the seasoned horse player that's going to get fed up with stuff like that and is going to move to play something else. And I personally, like, I told this story a couple weeks ago, and I'm sure this has happened to you. You ever been live to a single in the pick five and the horse is like six to five on a David Arago in a morning line and opens at like three to one and you're like, I have absolutely no chance. You ever <laughs> that ever happened to you? Oh, all like, the time. <laughs> okay. So that happened and the horse didn't run a step and I closed my account and I bet sports the rest of the day. So I think, you know, that wasn't anything like the Tampa thing. That wasn't just incompetence or nefariousness or anything. It's just one of those things that happens as a horse player where you feel like, People know what's going to happen before the race, and you don't. Yeah. I wonder what your thoughts are. That do you do you uh, do you bet sports at all? No, um, I'm one of these people that's like very focused on horse racing. That's my sport. Um, I like some other Olympic sports. We can talk about that maybe another time. But oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Talk about it now. Like, I saw you tweeting yeah. about the figure skating last night. Yeah, I'm like a little bit of a figure skating uh, nerd. By, uh, but uh, we, so the Olympics are kind of an exciting time for me. But no, like team sports and stuff like that, I really don't follow it. It's not my forte. Got you. Yeah. So did you ever did you ever skate, or is it something you just enjoyed watching? 
No, uh, my mom was really into watching skating when I was a kid. She would like just sit in front of the TV and like ball her eyes out whenever she saw Michelle Kwan. So I kind of like grew up watching that. And I had some friends in college. One of them was into skating and uh, a couple like to watch it. So I don't know. It just was like something that kind of stuck. And they have like a new scoring system where it's like really math based. And it kind of fascinates me a little bit. So um, I, I come at it from that perspective. It's also a sport that's like rife with problems and like political upheaval. So it's a little refreshing to take a break from racing and go to that at times. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's my story. With so that. Racing is the sport that's rife with problems. I was like, what are these figure skating controversies <laughs> that I haven't heard about? Nathan Chen was incredible last night. That was, that was great. Totally, yeah. That was awesome. that, uh, redemption in, in the Olympics. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the problems in racing. I don't want to focus on it too much. Um, sure. But you know, we got, First of all, I think the the disintegration of the agreement between Haiza and USADA, I thought, was a major, major blow in terms of racing, cleaning itself up and getting all of its drug enforcement and drug policy under one roof. What was what was your reaction to that when you heard that news? Yeah, I watched part of your writer's room with Travis Tigart and uh, what was her name again? Uh, yeah. Uh, and that was so fascinating. And it kind of gave me some hope at that point in time. And I feel like the subsequent news about the communications breaking down, it's a little frustrating. It's, it's definitely discouraging. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly where this is going. I'm hopeful that there's going to be some kind of agreement reached or some alternate solution because it does feel like that was going down a path that racing really needs to address. Um, the uniform rules, certainly, and the testing component, especially. Um, yeah, I mean, you probably have better insight into what's what you think might happen with that. Um, it's not something like a beat that I'm following every day, um, but uh, it's it's something that's so long overdue in racing because, I mean, not only do you have the inconsistencies from state to state, you just have this general lack of transparency. And so many of these racing commissions have just like gotten into this habit of being as secretive as possible, dragging their feet. You never know like if anything's actually going to happen, if like a medication positive is ever going to be reported. I because you're referring just to gonna... something specific, but I, I, I can't imagine what it is. I mean, I only because it's happened recently, but I mean, yeah. you could go back five, 10 years and like it's the same thing that's been happening forever. I think it's probably, there's probably a little more scrutiny applied to it now because there've been such high profile cases in the past couple of yeah. years. Um, but this kind of thing's always been happening. So, I mean, things do need to change, but you really do need like somebody to step in and make some like drastic changes. And it just feels like Haiza opened the door for that, but racing still needs to walk through it. That's the whole thing. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that this this was going to be a perfect solution or that it was going to be without issues. I know there were a lot of there were a lot of concerns about the cost and how that was going to be distributed throughout the industry, which I think is legitimate. But, you know, you, you know what a godsend it is that USADA is even interested in getting involved in a Mickey Mouse sport like ours. You know what I mean? That's just not the kind of thing that you would expect an industry with such or like an organization with such cred credibility to want to get involved in in the first place. And I think people just don't realize kind of what an opportunity that is. And I wonder if you feel this way, but my feeling is that it's just there. I think there are too many self-interested people that, you know, it's the, the current status quo is working out for them individually and they just can't see the forest for the trees. And they don't, they don't, they don't think of being stewards of the game and, and you know, the, the greater health of the sport. How, how would you feel about that? 
I mean, like another example of that is like this thing that the jockey club tried to do with the stallion cap and like all these farms are like suing over it. I mean, it's anything that like the industry tries to do together in the best interest of the game. It's like people, you know, the the powerful players in this sport can't stop themselves from putting their own self-interest ahead of the future of the sport. And especially for some like a young person like me, and I'm I'm sure like you who works in this sport, it's just so discouraging to keep seeing it happen over and over again. And, you know, with the medication side of things, it's, you know, what's going on with Baffert obviously is, it's a big problem. Um, I feel like a lot of people come at it from the wrong angle by just, you know, viewing the specific infractions around Medina Spirit and the other horses that, you know, have come up positive over the past few years is like, you know, the entire picture of what's going on in horse racing when it's just like the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, the overage of beta-methasone is like, that's not the medication you should be concerned about if you're concerned about doping and horse racing. It's the stuff that nobody knows uh, about. And if you watched, again, I, I, you know, I saw Travis talking about this on the interview you did with him. I mean, if you followed like track and field or other sports where doping is a huge issue, um, you know, you know that there are um, biological, uh, I don't know if medications is the right word that, uh, just are untestable and they stay in people's systems for a long time. And I mean, it only stands to reason that that kind of stuff it's, I mean, it's been in other sports for so long. It only stands to reason that it's made it into horse racing. I don't know um, what's how, how sophisticated of a level, but I mean, I don't feel like there's a big awareness or even a big understanding that that's a uh, frontier that needs to be uh, come at. Uh, So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm like throwing out a lot of like different loose ends here, but I, I I don't know. It just feels like there's such a big obstacle to making progress on this front that it, it often feels too overwhelming. Well, and you brought up the beta-methazone thing. I think it's one of those things that kind of evens out because I don't think the, the beta-methazone thing is a – I don't think that's why Medina Spirit won the Derby, obviously. I, and yeah. I think that the stuff that they're testing for – I think Bob Baffert might be right, actually, that the thresholds are a little too sensitive for these tests. Sure. And that gets the big news – but the stuff that they're not testing, that they can't test for yet, that people are using and getting away with, that doesn't make news. But that's an equal, that's a, that's that's the problem. So I think you know, even if the smaller drugs get the big the big headlines, it should be there should be a headline. You know, there should be a headline in racing that we have a drug problem that we can't get under control. Yeah, I mean, like you, if you handicap the races and bet the races, you see it every day. These gigantic form reversals, especially in the claiming races, that are just unexplainable, and yet. Day after day, the tests come back clean, or so we're told the tests come back clean. This is not reported. Uh, but I mean, a lot of that is due to the fact that you can't test for these things. I mean, the federal indictments from 2020, I mean, we always go back to that, but those were substances that those horses never tested positive for. I don't think we even still know how to test for those substances. We just know that they were medications that were being administered. And you don't know how widespread that is. Uh, it's that's the thing that like I'm really concerned about. And when I see odd things happening in racing, my mind keeps going back to that kind of stuff. And just to like cycle back to the Baffert thing for a minute, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not defending Baffert in saying that, like, I don't care about the beta-methasone thing that much. I mean, the, the, the thing that gets me most upset about the Baffert situation, it's just going back to somebody powerful in the sport that doesn't have the best interests of the future of the sport in mind. Baffert's entire media tour afterwards, his recklessness with fighting all of these things. Uh, I mean, 
David, it's cancel culture. That's the thing. That's that's, that's, that's getting rid of Bob Baffert, totally. No, what was reported in that Washington Post article that I'm sure most people read that Baffert will never, ever, ever accept a suspension and he will spend as much money as he can possibly on legal fees to get around a suspension. I mean, just that refusal to accept responsibility. I think that's why Bob Baffert needs to be, I don't know. I'm not the stewards. I don't I get to make these decisions. I'm not the racing commission, but something needs to be um, some penalty needs to be levied against Bob Baffert for what he's done to racing in the past couple of years. That's my well, opinion. And it's, it. like the, it's, the, it's not about this one thing. It's the totality of his record. You know, he's had an opportunity, exactly. an opportunity to play by the totally. rules. And, you know, whether you want to chalk it up to sloppiness or nefariousness, whatever, it's just it, it, there's there's been chance after chance to get it right. And he hasn't been able to do that. But again, it all goes back to not having the right cops on the beat. You know, it's, it's just we're kind of left up to the self-regulation standard that just does not work for this sport with 33 different racing jurisdictions. And it, it's yeah. It, it, for, first of all, just the fact that he broke that news. He broke the news of the, the, the drug positive. That was yep. like in itself was just like something you could never imagine in any other sport. Who knows? Only would have heard about it otherwise, right? Right. Well, well, because you can see what's going on with the KHRC with the with the hearing or not here, non hearing or, or you know, yep. yeah. So we don't we we don't have the right cops on the beat. So that's the root of all these problems, right? Totally. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, not, like, I don't want to keep harping on the same thing forever, but like, it's yeah, it's um, it's just really frustrating, and I I don't feel like I have the answers. Um, I feel like there was, you know, things were going in a direction that seemed somewhat hopeful with Haiza being implemented, and now now it seems very uncertain. And yeah. you know, just the uniform medication rules and people knowing that. Uh, they had to follow a specific set of guidelines. I feel like that could go such a long way. I mean, the whole testing component, it's very its very difficult to implement that. I'm sure there are monetary concerns in a lot of racing circuits, but having those uniform rules in place, it would be such a right step in the, a good step in the right direction. Um, you just hope you can get there. Yeah, and it's just, it's, it's one of those things where like, you want to you like shake people and be like, do you not see what the rest of the public sees? At, you know, right now, because it's it's just so easy to be uh, it's like a very insular game. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Like, there are just so many people that are, that are like, well, all my friends are in racing and everyone says it's going great. You know, it's just it's so yeah. easy to you, just you, kind of brush you, out the side. You, but you guys like you and I who don't really have racing friends outside of the ones we've made through our jobs. You know, it's it's easier to, for, to see what regular the layman thinks of, about racing. And it's unfortunate. You're passionate about the sport, which we are. You know, it's just it becomes one of those things where it's like you can't save a sport that does not want to save itself a little bit. You know, you can totally. only do so much. And we try on the writer's room, like we try to bring these issues to light. And I think that's one of the reasons, honestly, the show has become popular is that, you know, there aren't that many people talking about these things in racing. I, I think that there is an appetite for that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, like so just like a, what's a broad sense that, that, that you get from people outside of racing? Like, what do they think? Obviously, when the Kentucky Derby uh, positive came out last year, everybody who knew that I worked in racing, like that's the first thing they ask about. Um, the same thing happened with Medina Spirit's death uh, at the end of last year. Like it, that was the story that people were aware of. And it's it gets really frustrating when people's only awareness of your profession is like the most sordid stuff that comes out into the mainstream. You know, the Bob Baffert SNL skit. I mean, you could just keep going backwards in time. And it's just like, 
which was absolutely great. It, it, it was funny, but like, it hurt, but it was it, great. But like, you almost weren't you. At least me personally, like I wasn't ready to laugh at it at that time because it just all was like it was like a fresh wound that gets right. keeps getting reopened, right. um, and like you could just keep going back through like the past year, and it's like a greatest hits list of just negative stories about racing. And like I'm not one of these people that thinks like you have to like dig up positive stories to counteract the negative narrative. Like it's not that's not what it's about. Like all these negative stories are coming out because there are so many problems, and to to make positive stories, the problems need to be addressed. You yeah. shouldn't sweep them under the rug to kind of like throw a party on top of it. That's not how you, how you fix horse racing. Um, but to you know, that I have, point, like, that's another reason yeah. that, we're, that, that we're kind of screwed by not having a central governing body or even like a central public relations unit of some sort, because there, you know, I think there are positive stories. Handle is up, which I want to ask you about. Uh, breakdowns overall are down um, in the last 10 years, if you look at the Jockey Club study. So I think that there are positive stories that you can push back with, but you need that that body to push back. You need someone, you need to hire some fancy pants PR firm to do your PR. Like if you're the NTRA, you know what I mean? We had Tom Rooney, who was the new NTRA chief on our show. And I asked him that. I was like, can you do anything to push back on these negative narratives? And he said, yes, and we'll see how that goes. But that's another thing where it's a real deficit for racing, not to have that, that central voice. Don't you think? Totally. Like when some, when a real negative story like that breaks out into the mainstream, it, it's like, nobody knows who to turn to. Right. I mean, there are a few respected journalists and writers, but like beyond that, like there's nobody that's in that high position of authority nationally that can come out and say something. Uh, it's just like, this chorus of people that gets really muddled and they end up bickering with each other. And then uh, it just ends like nothing gets solved uh, coming out in the mainstream media. I mean, I, I have like one uh, person who's close to me who's kind of been getting more interested in horse racing recently. And uh, he's getting a little bit into the betting and handicapping side of it. And like, he's just gotten introduced to racing really in the past year or so and got into it way more during the pandemic when like there was not a whole lot else to do. And he's, he'll just say to me like every so often, like, how do you deal with like all these <laughs> negative stories that keep coming yeah. out all the time? Like, it just seems like there's nothing ever positive coming out of your industry. Like it just must get so frustrating and, it's true. It does. But we're going to talk about the, the rising handle because that is a positive story. There's been a little bit of debate about, you know, how much of that is the computer wagers and how much of that was just a function of the, of the COVID boom where everybody was home all the time. Uh, wh what are your feelings like? Just I know that you're not like privy to the data necessarily, but wh what's your general feeling about, you know, where that handle increase is coming from? I mean, I've seen a few smarter people than me uh, like talk about this on online and stuff like that. And I mean, a couple of the points that caught my eye are one of the things you mentioned. I mean, just the phenomenon of the pandemic. And it's not it wasn't just during the stay at home period. Even today, there are still a lot of people that are choosing to work from home when they didn't before. I feel like I'm one of them. I, I almost always work from home these days. I used to go to the track so much more and I don't anymore. Yeah. Um, it's just just kind of gotten comfortable doing what I did for the past year. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm not like a typical case of that. There are a lot of people that used to work in an office that now just kind of transition to work from home because they like it better. And it does give a lot more freedom. And I'm sure people can follow the races a lot more. I've seen even people that I follow on Twitter who used to take the week off now tweeting about the races on a Wednesday. I mean, it's, I'm sure they're working, but like they're also following that. So I, I do think that um, the stay at home component definitely has to have had an, um, an impact on handle as far as the CIW money goes. I don't really know. I mean, it, it's, it's always been mysterious. Um, 
does it really stand to reason that there would have been a sharp uptick in CAW money over the past year? What, what, what would be the reasons for that? I don't know. That, right. that seems like it should be fairly constant over time. Like yeah. that's been really well honed at this point. Or you well, would think it has been down with the Naira, you know, restrictions, well, right? That too. I mean, there are, yeah. there are more reasons why it should be going down than going up. So yeah, I, I do feel like something else is going on. Um, I, I don't know what all the factors are. I'm sure it is a multi-factor um, explanation, uh, but the world has changed a lot in the past couple of years. So I guess it stands to reason that the way people's the way people behave with their money that, that could change too. Yeah, and that's that's I think that's like something we're really holding on to is these positive handle numbers in the last year. So we'll see what happens this year. It's like maybe we we trans we like transition back to normal. Um, I also wanted to ask. Have you ever you ever done a handicapping contest? Has that ever been an interest of yours? You know, it never really. Um, I tried it like a maybe ten years ago. Um, it never really caught on with me, though. I mean, I, it's a completely different kind of strategy than betting paramutually. Right. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a paramutual component to that, but it's a very um, it's it's a different kind of strategy to approaching the races. It's way more, or at least from my perspective, it's way more about betting in a way to beat other people than about the handicapping side of it. Um, betting, you know, offensively or defensively, uh, that kind of thing. And, and it's so much about kind of being right on the day as opposed to being right over a period of time, right. like trying to bang out that decent ROI, which is what I get so focused on. Maybe yeah. it's not that, um, it's just a different way of looking at the races. I mean, I take my hat off to people that are really interested in that. Um, that's awesome. I mean, a- another kind of pathway that people can get interested in horse racing. I mean, it's great for us. Um, it's just, it's never been something that, you know, I've been itching to do, but who knows? Maybe I'll learn more about it in the future and that would change. Maybe I'll hook up with somebody that like convinces me otherwise, but it's not something that I've, um, I've done a lot of in the past five, six years. Well, it's also one of those things where, I don't know, maybe I'm just not a good enough handicapper, but you really got to stick with it. You know, it's just, unless you can qualify on like your first try, you really got to stick with it like day after day. Um, but you mentioned the ROI thing, like how you seem like a very smart math oriented guy, just from talking to you. How much do you keep track of that for yourself? Like whether it's your public plays or whether it's your just your day-to-day individual plays, how much do you keep tabs on that? Oh, I mean, I keep track of all of it. I mean, to different extents. I mean, with like the public stuff, I track it. Sometimes I hate doing it because it's going down the tubes. I mean, sometimes sometimes it's a pleasure. Um, it depends yeah. on how your meat's going. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I always track it and uh, try to... Uh, uh, see where I'm going wrong. Sometimes just go through a bad streak and you have to suffer that. Um, but, uh, I, I try to keep on top of the public plays. It is really hard to be a public handicapper and crank out a positive ROI consistently. Um, you know, putting out those picks 24 hours ahead of time, especially on a circuit like New York, it's uh, the money is just too smart for that to work really well over the long period, over a long term. Um, but I do like to think that the insights that I put out and the picks that I give, they help people in other pools, multi-race wagers, that kind of thing. It just makes people think about the races in a different way, gives people angles to use. So um, I hope it's helpful. Um, but uh, yeah, Cracking out that positive win ROI is really difficult. And from the personal like betting side of things, I think it's essential to keep track of your ROI and totally. see how you're doing 
what kind yeah. of tracks, which tracks you do well at, what kind of wagers, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, and I'm not sucking up to you just because you came on on this show. I think you have one of the sharpest opinions out there, and you're one of those guys that when you when you have a highlight horse, I definitely take notice. But what, so what's like a what's a what's a typical day for you like wagering wise? I'm assuming you're you're gravitating towards pick fives because those are, those are the best value in terms of takeout. Uh, but do you, do you do win bets? Do you do intra race wagering? Like, what's a typical day for you like? Uh. To be honest, this is a pretty quiet time of year for me. Um, I don't like Aqueduct is like a really tough meat to bet. Um, the, 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 a lot of the race cards are pretty thin. Um, you know, it's it's kind of hard for me to find stuff to write about at times because there's just not a whole lot going on. Um, you know, but when racing cranks up at other times of the year, like, yeah, I like to diversify. Um pick fives, pick fours. Um, I'm not really much of a pick six player, never happened. I did. I did hit a nice one like years ago at Saratoga, but uh, it hasn't worked out in the long term. Um, but yeah, it, it really, for me, depends on what my handicapping opinions are and where I think the value lies. I'm not, I don't necessarily like to come into something saying I'm going to bet the pick five today. I like to look at the race card and say like, okay, my opinions are in races X, Y, and Z. How can I hook those up or which horses do I like? So what are the best bets to use in these situations to capitalize on my opinions not so much trying to like retrofit my opinions to a specific specific that's so smart like that's one of my big problems is like i try to like you know hammer out a pick five play just because i feel like it's it's such a relatively speaking it's such good value because you can always find 15 percent takeout but yeah i think that's one of the, the issues i have is like you know putting in hundreds of dollars into a pick five play because i'm like well this is the best value but you really yeah i mean and I think that's one of the problems that's been born out of um, the way racing is covered on TV. A lot of times you see, I mean, not to pick on one specific network, that's not what I'm looking to do, but like there's this always this conversation about like, what's your pick five ticket? What's your pick yeah, six yeah. ticket? Who right. are you singling? And right. I feel like sometimes that leads people down the path of thinking like, I have to be this kind of player to make money. And it's not the case. I mean, you should do what suits you. You should look at what you've been successful at and build your strategy on that, uh, don't have to come into a day thinking I'm going to play the pick five at this specific track because everybody's talking about it. If your opinions don't really line up that way, find something else to play. You'll probably do better. Yeah. And it, be, it kind of becomes a little bit of an obsession where it's like these things that you can get like 300 to one odds on if you hit a good pick five. But it's really more about cranking out a positive ROI, like you say. And also, like, I this is my, might be my last question for you. We'll see where it goes. But I just, what's, like, a typical day for you outside of racing? Are you, you in Queens? Is that where you live? I'm in Queens, yeah. Queens? Mm-hmm. Like, what's a typical day for you? Like, you like to go out a little bit, or are you just really mostly staying at home studying the, the, the horses? Uh, it depends on the day of the week. Uh, from, like, Wednesday to Friday, sometimes I barely leave the apartment because yeah. there are so many, like, deadlines to hit. That's, like, the busy time to get all that stuff out before the weekend. Right. Um but yeah, my typical day for me is I've uh, got my morning line deadline in the morning. I try to like, I'm a bit of a, a night owl, so I'll stay up late trying to do all that work, going through the right. races before the deadline the next day. Um, but I, I will try to get some outside time when I can. Um, actually, I've, I've never been like that much of a gym rat or anything like that. But lately, I've been trying to take up running and do a lot more like running outdoors, even in the wintertime. Um, I actually signed up for my first ever half marathon in a few months. Ooh, so uh it's in april actually at keeneland so i'll be taking a trip to kentucky that's then, awesome so we're actually going to be that. uh the writer's room is going to be at keeneland in april as well we're going to do a live awesome. show there. yeah my friend yeah, so sorry go, yeah, ahead. go ahead 
No, no, so like that, that's on the horizon for me. So yeah. my friend did a, did the New York City marathon recently, and it made me feel like a total schlub. So thanks for no. I mean, like that. I can't say that I like it, but yeah. it gets me outside, and I mean, it it does uh, kind of like give you some time to decompress mentally and put you in a better mood. So I mean, there are some benefits to it, but uh, it's not, not not always fun while you're doing it. No, uh, running is like very monotonous to me. Yeah. Like I, and the only reason, like this was one of the things actually was born out of the pandemic was I got a Peloton and that's mm-hmm. just one of the things that it's like, it, it, the, something about the music, like it keeps you focused. And even then sometimes it's hard to walk the 10 feet in my apartment over to the Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the longest 10 feet of my life. I know. Um, but it's just, it's having that little like slice of accomplishment during the day. I think that that kind of really helps mentally as much as physically. Yeah, no, I think especially with racing and the kind of job that I have, it's important to take some time to just mentally decompress because, I mean, you can get so immersed in horse racing, like there's always something going on. And I mean, whether it's like the wagering side where like you're always chasing the next thing or like just the work that I have to do and all the deadlines I have to hit, like there's always something to do unless like I take vacation time and actually like completely shut my laptop and turn it off. Um, There's always something that you can get, um, you know, that can catch your fancy. So I think it is important like every week at a specific time or, you know, each day to like, just take some time for yourself to, do like a, a sanity check. Um, yeah. I, I try to, I try to, especially like in the summer during the Saratoga meet when like there are so many deadlines and I'm just like immersed in it all day long. Um, it can be tough and it can really wear you down and you have to stay on top of that. Yeah. Well, especially for a guy like you, I think who wears a lot, of, a lot of different hats for sure in this business. I, oh, yeah. I'm going to sound like a stalker right now, but I felt like you tweeted a while ago about getting a dog. Maybe is that, did that, was that a thing that happened? Um, I don't, I'm trying to think if I tweeted a dog picture. Um, no, I don't think so. You have I don't a have a dog. dog. I do not have a dog. I don't. <laughs> I was going to show, I was going to use another excuse to show you my dogs. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I, I love dogs. I might have yeah. tweeted a picture of my dad's dogs. Maybe I was like taking them on a walk. I, I forget, but yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so that's all I got, David. This was better than okay. I could ever imagine, man. This was, oh, so this was cool. awesome. I enjoyed this. Yeah. I would love to do this again, or maybe come on your show or you can come on the writer's room. Like that's, you know, you're a guy that I honestly really do respect in the business, and I, I, I really appreciate the time and, and all the all all the insights as well, man. No, I mean, I love to read your guys' stuff you put out. I mean, you cover a lot of the beats in racing that I think a lot of the main, a lot of the other um, papers and journalists don't uh, necessarily touch upon because there's so much else going on, so much to cover in racing. Um, it's uh, no, I, I appreciate the work that you guys do. And, uh, you know, this is the, the idea for this show, too, is to eventually have it be in person. So maybe like up at Saratoga or something, we can go to a bar or something and just kind That'd of be awesome. this. But this is perfect. So thank you once again to David Aragona for coming on the show. He was he was better than I ever could have imagined. I always wanted to talk to him and get to know him. And he was a terrific interview. Obviously, a really smart guy. I look forward to talking to him again in the future. I promise the Kentucky Derby future wager bet. Uh, pool three of the Kentucky Derby Future Wager open wager opens this weekend. I'll start with the caveat that I don't normally love giving out Derby Future bets because there's such a relatively high likelihood that the horse won't even make it to the starting gate to begin with. Um, but if you're going to make one, you want a horse that you think will be either similar or hopefully better odds in the Future Wager 
then on Derby Day if they do make it to the starting gate. And I'm going to go with a bomb. I'm going to go with command performance for Todd Pletcher. Um, he's an interesting horse because he's he still hasn't broken his maiden. He's run four times, hasn't won a race, but he's run big in a couple of big grade one races. He was second in the Champagne as a two-year-old. He was fourth in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, and he hasn't started yet as a three-year-old. So he's kind of a forgotten horse at this point, I think. He's going to be a huge price. He's going to be overlooked in, in the future bet, 50, 60, maybe even 70 to one. Those are the horses you're really trying to bet because if they do jump up and run big in a prep race, which I expect him to do somewhere between now and Derby Day, he's probably going to be more in the 30 to 41 range or maybe even lower than that if he wins one of these races. He's by Union Rags. Union Rags won the mile and a half Belmont. So I think he's going to get better as the distances get longer as well. He obviously has a tremendous Hall of Fame trainer in Todd Pletcher. And I think he's just going to be one of the forgotten horses on this derby trail until he runs big in one of the preps. So I like command performance. 50 to 1 or better for sure in the Kentucky Derby Future Wager. And thank you so much for watching the first episode of Better Things with Joe Bianca. Thank you so much to David Aragona for joining us. We'll see you next time.